Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 127th episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. I go by JAG. I'm the CEO of The Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like our graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined by a dear friend of the Atlas Society, Marion Tupi. Uh, I'm gonna introduce him, but just wanted to remind all of you who are watching us, you can start typing in your questions for our guest, uh, whether on Zoom, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, just use the comment section and we will get to as many of them as we can. But I'll probably see yours first if you start typing early. All right, so our guest today, Marion Tupi, he is editor of humanprogress.org, a senior fellow at Cato's Center for Global Prosperity, Global Liberty and Prosperity. Uh, now, Marion joined our senior scholar, Stephen Hicks, back in the summer of 2020 for the 10th episode of our webinar series to discuss his book, 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know. Um, and so it's uh, really great to have him back more than two years later to discuss his latest, Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing, uh, in which he and uh, his co-author Gail Hooley demolished the false premises of Malthusian-inspired scarcity and provide bold predictions of a bountiful future fueled by freedom, innovation, and trade. Marion, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's always delightful to see you. So uh, now for those of you who missed Marion's premiere in this space, you may not know that he was born in communist Czechoslovakia. Uh, he moved with his parents to South Africa he completed his studies in Great Britain, and then he moved to the United States. Um, so I'm wondering, Marian, did living in those different countries, particularly in retrospect, give you a unique perspective on the kinds of systems and the kind of cultures that encourage progress and human flourishing? Um, sure. I think that I was an anti-socialist since about the age of 10, uh, when, when I first was old enough to start perceiving what was happening around me in communist Czechoslovakia with a heavy dose of advice and tutelage by my grandparents who were deeply anti-communist. I sort of always understood that I lived in a very strange place with no rights and, uh, where everything sucked, to use the technical term. <laughs> um, everything was just very, well, everybody was poor. Everything was gray. Um, Ayn Rand, I'm sure, had something to say about those sorts of things when, when she left uh, Soviet Russia. Um, food was bad. Clothes was bad. Um, uh, living conditions were bad. Uh, streets were dirty. It was just a, it was just a depressing place to to grow up now, I don't want to exaggerate things. You know, by the late 1980s, when I became politically conscious, nobody was getting shot um, for uh, you know having slightly dissenting views or or things like that. It wasn't the 1940s or the 1950s, but it was still an oppressive society. 
but I became pro-capitalist by reading Ayn Rand, actually, by reading um, uh, Atlas Shrugged. That was my sort of opening to, to, to Rand. And that made me a pro-capitalist. So I was always anti-socialist, but I was against something, not in favor of something. It was after I read Rand that I really became much more concerned about what is it that I do believe in, as opposed to what is it that I just oppose. And then, of course, things sort of stone, uh, they, they sort of, um, uh, they, they sort snowballed. of snowballed. Um, um, I think that uh, I was always interested in history and especially economic history in college. And so I started to think more about the origins of prosperity. I mean, nobody has to explain poverty. We all get that because everybody was once poor. But there is this sliver of population that managed to escape from absolute poverty in uh, somewhere in the 18th century, 19th centuries, the, the, the advanced Western countries. And so trying to understand the process by which prosperity happens um, became a bit of an obsession to me. So that's really my background. And of course, I, I also lived in Africa where I saw a lot of poverty and a lot of oppression. Um, so all of those things just made me much more interested in the, 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 in the causes for the wealth of nations. Yeah, no, it's interesting that you mentioned that Ayn Rand was your introduction, um, particularly as someone, as you say, who's been interested in history and interested in economics. It reminds me of uh, my friend Jeffrey Tucker, who has said that before Ayn Rand, the battle for liberty was merely intellectual and that after Ayn Rand, it was deeply spiritual. So um, the fact that she continues to be such an important gateway drug, if you will, to liberty is why I think it's important to continue to maintain and update and refresh that arsenal for liberty, which is just what yeah, we're doing absolutely. Society. Yeah, uh, having my eyes open to the notion that capitalism had a moral component to it was was actually very important. So yeah, so let's talk about these two books. I was mentioning before we went live that uh, folks, there's actually a pretty cool is it orange and blue cover to this? I, I have a I have the cover here in case anybody's okay. Interested. All right, so I, I, it looks like this. Yeah, kind of, kind of Bitcoiny there, um, but uh, this book has gotten so much use around my house that it, it's uh, it's now naked. It's like a nudist book. Um, but uh, so this is this is the book, the the ten global trends every smart person should know. Um, and then here's the new book. So very different. I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about the differences between the two books. Where is their overlap? And in what ways, if any, is superabundance a departure? Well, 10 global trends, um, they are the most important trends, obviously, but there's actually 78 different trends that are pertaining to all sorts of aspects of human well-being. Um, we try to measure uh, in the, the first book um, human well-being along many different dimensions, so life expectancy, child mortality, incomes per capita, and so on and so forth. And um, we try to deliberately keep it theory-free, uh, just facts with a little bit of explanation as to what people are looking at when they are checking out the different uh, different charts. Uh, the second book is much more of a heavy lift, to be quite honest. Um, it is full of history. Uh, it is uh, full of economics. It is full of data. Um, so it is meant, I think, for a different type of audience, people who are much more interested in delving in depth into one of the one of the subjects. I mean, 
trend number three in the first book deals with natural resources. And here we have a 550 page book devoted to just that one trend and trying to understand how is it possible that uh, global population keeps on expanding, but raw materials are becoming cheaper. Basically, that's the that's the idea behind behind the new book. So it's a it's a much more academic book. Um, it is written in a style that that anybody can read. Anybody who reads, uh, God forbid, New York Times, Washington Post, but maybe I should say Wall Street Journal, <laughs> which I do, um, then can can read this very easily. So the inspiration, if I understand correctly, uh, your research into this book began with looking at updating Julian Simon's famous wager with biologists and environmentalists about whether the price of five commodities uh, metals would rise or fall. So for those unfamiliar, I think most of our audience is familiar, but uh, we, we cast a wide net here. So perhaps you could start with a level set in terms of uh, the terms and the outcomes of the wager, and then share in what ways you sought to update it. Sure. So um, people have been wondering about the relationship between population growth and resources for a very long time. But in, in recent history, the big break was in 1968, a Stanford University biologist by the name of Paul Ehrlich, he's still alive, by the way, wrote a very important, very influential, and very popular book called The Population Bomb. It sold like 3 million copies, was translated into goodness knows how many languages. And in the book, Paul Ehrlich basically said, no matter what we do, no matter how we change our behavior by the 1970s and the 1980s, hundreds of millions of people are going to die due to starvation because we are simply going to run out of stuff. Now, that obviously didn't happen. But most people believe that it would happen. One person who didn't believe that it would happen was uh, Julian Simon, who was an economist at University of Maryland and also a senior fellow at Cato. And he, in uh, 1980, um, challenged Paul Ehrlich to a wager. Ehrlich chose five metals. They are tin, nickel, tungsten, copper, and chromium. Ehrlich chose them, not Simon. Ehrlich chose them. And basically, they did a they did a futures contract um, for one thousand dollars, and um, uh, and a ten year period. So, if in nineteen ninety prices of resources went up, even as population went up, yeah. So, so the prediction by Ehrlich was that population was going to grow, and therefore uh, commodities were going to become more expensive, and therefore the price would would grow. Uh, then, then, then Simon would have to pay Ehrlich. If, on the other hand, Simon's prediction was correct which is that with increase of population, commodities were actually going to decline in price, then Ehrlich would pay Simon. Well, in 10 years time, the wager came to an end on 29th of September, 1990. And the average of those five commodities fell by 36% in inflation adjusted terms. So Ehrlich sent Simon a check for $576. Now that should have been the end of, of the debate, but it wasn't. Uh, even though the intelligentsia has moved a little bit away from we are going to run out of natural resources, the fact is that the public is still very much wedded to the uh, Malthusian or Ehrlichian principles, thinking that if you have a bigger population, you are going to run out of resources. People are making, uh, we know that from public opinion polls, uh, which are included in the book. People are making decisions about having children or not having children, depending on, you know, uh, are we going to run out of resources? 
but it, it permeates the, the 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 public opinion, and we know that uh, because some a disproportionate disproportionate number of the recent mass shootings around the world happened based on Malthusian principles. So Andreas Breivik, who shot up uh, those schoolchildren in Norway, for example, left behind him a Malthusian manifesto. From him, uh, there was a guy called Tarrant in uh, New Zealand who learned from him, and he left behind him a, a Malthusian manifesto. He also shot a bunch of people. And then most recently, we had a mass shooting of 22 people in El Paso in uh, New Mexico. I think it's New Mexico. Um, and, and that guy uh, left behind him a Malthusian manifesto, basically saying um, there are far too many people in the world. We have limited number of resources. You will not change your consumption habits. Therefore, I have to start by culling the number of people in the world. And so even though Malthusianism no longer enjoys the kind of um, that kind of unquestioning uh, acceptance amongst uh, amongst intellectuals that it once did, uh, that sort of notion has not penetrated down to the level of of ordinary people. And um, to make things worse, uh, many people who are very much on on people's minds when they watch TV and so on are still wedded to Malthusian principles. Only two years ago. Bill Mara, for example, on a very popular show, The Real Time with Bill Mara, um, talked about how human beings use, use too much stuff and we have too many people in the world. So there, there is that sort of anti-humanist, anti-natalist element that still permeates society. So I did a paper updating the Simon Ehrlich wager to 2017, and then I got a call from a man who would then later become my co-author, Gail Pooley, and he said, what would happen if you looked at the terms of the wager from the perspective of wages, in other words, don't just adjust for inflation, see what's happening to people's wages. And when we looked at that, we found that Simon would have won by 40%, not by 36%. And that has given rise to this concept of time prices that we can talk about later. Yeah, well, let's talk about it now, because I, I think that is uh, perhaps one of the, the biggest innovations of uh, your book uh, in terms of trying to measure what, not just how much this costs in inflation adjusted dollars, but how much time it costs to be able to afford, yeah. let's say, an hour of light or uh, a pound of sugar. And, and I'm still a little bit curious on how you chose, like from what perspective, right? Because if you're an extremely productive person, wouldn't it take you less time to, to earn those same things? And so tell us a little bit about how the, the framework uh, functions. Sure. So let's start with time prices. What are time prices? Time prices are basically how many minutes or hours of work you have to work in order to earn enough money to buy something. And if in 10 years time, the number of minutes falls from five to four or to three, then you're getting better off in life. Now, why would this be an innovation? Why, why would anybody be interested in this? Um, everybody who listens to your program will know everything about nominal prices. That's the prices you see in a, in a store. Uh, and they will also understand that in order to, to, to comprehend whether something is getting more expensive or less expensive, you have to adjust it for inflation. Um, and that's when you get from nominal prices to real prices. Um, 
the problem with both nominal prices and real prices is that they do not account to what is happening in your wallet. They, they do not take into account um, the productivity gains in human labor. So if you're looking at an item, let's say a, a can of water or a can of Coke over a period of 20 years, well, it can tell you that in terms of real price, it hasn't changed or it has slightly increased or slightly fell. But if your wages in those 20 years time, in, in those 20 years have increased twofold or threefold, then of course, you're, you're getting ahead in life at a much faster pace than, than the real price would suggest. So uh, let me give you an example of, of, a, of a time price. So let's say that you're buying a Hershey bar, it costs you a dollar and you're making $10 an hour. Well, that means that you can get 10 Hershey bars for an hour of labor, or you have to work, or to put it differently, you have to work six minutes. Now, let's say that in 10 years time, uh, the Hershey bar has increased to $2 a Hershey bar. But in the meantime, your wages have increased from $10 to $30. So now you're getting 15 Hershey bars and you are working only four minutes. So from six minutes to four minutes, you are saving two minutes. And that time you can spend doing something else, earning money to buy a chewing gum. <laughs> and this is ultimately how, how, how economy functions. This is ultimately how what we mean when we say productivity gain, right? Uh, the, the, the reason why we are so rich today in the United States is because we are not spending all of our time working the fields to be able to uh, buy a pound of barley or wheat. Uh, we can now spend those eight hours in a day spending maybe a fraction of a second buying a pound of barley, but the rest of the time that we work we buy books and trips and 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 cars and houses and things like that. That's that's basically productivity. And the thing is that productivity gains get uh, get get uh, uh, get um, um, uh, sort of they they become they become real both in terms of what is happening to commodity prices and also to wages. So um, if you have a highly functioning farm, say an American farm today. It's not only that you are getting much more wheat or barley per acre, thereby driving the price, but also the farmer who is driving a mod modern combine harvester is earning much more per hour of work than, than his ancestor with a sickle or a scythe would have, right? So, so the beauty of time price is that it puts both of these productivity gains into one number. It accounts for productivity in production, but it also accounts for activity in terms of how much you are earning. You just divide the nominal price of a good by nominal wage, hourly wage in year one, you repeat the process 20 years from now. And so long as you're working fewer minutes or fewer hours in order to earn something, you are getting ahead in life. Oh, then you, then you ask a question about, about how do we account for inequality? In other words- Yeah, right. Yeah. So it might take one person six minutes to of work to buy a Hershey bar, but it would take somebody else uh, 0 0.006 seconds, and, you yes. know, if they're highly productive and, and what they're contributing to the economy is, is highly valued in terms of their, their yes. remuneration. So, that's right. So in this book, um, we only look at blue collar worker hourly wage, that's our denominator, 
and also unskilled worker in the United States. So we use two, two denominators, manufacturing labor, somebody making cars in the US, or, it, or an unskilled labor, somebody like janitor. Now, why would we do that? Because every time that I used average wage in the United States, I get attacked constantly by saying, oh my God, inequality in America is so huge that you are skewing the your your impression of of standards of living by the sorts of money earned by somebody like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos right in other words when you try to do this with just an average income average hourly wage um the 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 opponents of progress the opponents of capitalism will immediately dismiss that by saying that, that doesn't tell you anything about lives lives of real people at the bottom of the income ladder right and so from the get-go we were determined to use only wages of people at the very bottom of the income ladder because that sort of insulates us against uh, uh against criticism uh it really provides you with a with a uh with with a window onto the lives of the least fortunate working people in america well, um, yeah, so I guess, folks, when you're reading this book, keep in mind that if you are anywhere further along the economic ladder than somebody, you know, working in an unskilled job, then uh, your perspective is even more positive um, in Absolutely. terms of your, your gains. Um, let's get to the title of the book, Superabundance. You're not just using it as a superlative but as a specific term to describe, if I understand when the growth in resources outpaces increasing population growth. Is correct. that correct? And how do you measure that relationship? Yeah, you got it exactly right. So, so remember the Simon Ehrlich wager. Ehrlich was saying that when population increases, everything becomes more expensive, okay? We know that, that Ehrlich was wrong. Uh, we have been able to show in the book that everything is getting cheaper relative to labor cost, relative to time price. But now abundance of wheat, barley, oranges, beef, bananas, zinc, uranium, anything that we looked at, we looked at hundreds of things, can increase at three different speeds. It can increase at a slower rate than population grow. So let's say population grows at 2%, but your abundance is only increasing at 1%. We just call that increasing abundance. Also, population and abundance can increase at the same rate. So 3%, 3%. But what we find is that in every case we looked at, abundance what is increasing at, an, at a higher rate than, than population. Hmm. And that tells us that on average, Every human being brings into the world more productivity, more knowledge, more new technological uh, advance. Basically, we we create more than we consume. Otherwise, we wouldn't see this this relationship. But when you see population growing at say two percent and and um, and um, and abundance at a higher rate, then then you can say that as a matter of fact, human beings create more than they destroy or consume. Wow, that is a massive paradigm shift in terms of uh, how to understand uh, not just our place in the world, but also how to even think about resources and understanding that uh, humans are the ultimate resource in terms of 
turning natural materials into things that we need yeah, and, 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 and we can use. Yeah, and, and Simon was the original genius here. I cannot take credit for that. Simon was the one who coined the phrase that humans are the ultimate resource. Um, we hope to have taken the book. Uh, we, we, we are building on his work. I think that we are contributing new things to it. But he was the one who had the cajones and the foresight to be able to go against the uh, against the zeitgeist of his time by declaring that human beings are, um, are creators rather than just destroyers. And... And that's important because the world is filled with anti-humanist, anti-natalist um, sort of feeling. I mean, it, you can't open a newspaper without some crazy academic writing an article about how the world would be better off without any humans in it, which is ridiculous because without humans, who is going to appreciate the planet in the first place? The animals don't care. Uh, they are there to... Um, you know, eat, have sex, and not be eaten by by other animals. But they don't have an aesthetic appreciation of the world. Only we do. Uh, and 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 in the book, we point to example after example after example of people who just who just believe that we are cancer on the planet, and we just completely reject that. And we have mass on our side, thank God. Yes, yes. Well, you gave some examples, very disturbing examples earlier on about so many of the. Uh, mass shootings having been inspired by this premise that humans are a cancer on the earth and that uh, we are going to overwhelm uh, the planet's ability to sustain us. Um, and of course, there are also really horrific and lethal consequences uh, in terms of how that thinking translates into public policy. Um, and it seemed that one of the examples of that would be China's one child policy, uh, which prevented the births of at least 400 million Chinese. So what are some of the uh, negative consequences of that kind of policy of that kind of um, birth limiting population control uh, policy with regards to progress? Right. So if you believe, as we do, and we can talk about it a little bit later, that, um, um, you know, humans are the only entity capable of producing new ideas. Maybe at some point in the future, Ellen will succeed in creating AI or somebody else. Um, but right now, ideas are a product of the human mind. And there is only a small fraction of humans who actually invent or innovate anything. And so if you have a small population of, say, a billion people, like we did in 1800 when Thomas Jefferson was president, then that number of innovators and inventors is going to be much smaller than when you have a population of 8 billion people, like, like we have today. Um, and um, gosh, where was I going with this? Oh, so, so, so the thing is that between 1978 and, and 2015, China ran this one-child policy, and they are very boastful that they have prevented the birth of, they either killed or aborted or prevented from conception about 400 million people. Now, that turns out to be a spectacular shot in the foot, uh, which is what exactly what you would expect from a communist regime. For a variety, variety of reasons. One is that, of course, if they hadn't done that, China wouldn't have run out of resources, uh, but they would have had 400 million additional people um, with which to power their economy and create more economic growth. Can I jump in there? Um, sure. Because 
you know, that it's not just population. It's not just a bunch of people, as you have described in the book. It's population plus freedom. freedom. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, they had this policy at a time when uh, there was, you know, even less freedom in China than uh, there is today. And so I wonder if under communism, actually, uh, because you're not going to have increasing abundance necessarily, that that, that kind of policy actually uh, makes sense because, you know, you might have your Edisons, you might have your Elon Musks, you might have your John Galtz and Hank Reardons and Dagny Taggarts, but, uh, but they all turn into Kira Arganovas when they live under communism and their only choice is to die or to flee. Yes, so of course you're right. And, uh, you know, I, I would have come back to this subject later on uh, is that superabundance equals population times freedom. Freedom is absolutely crucial. Uh, if population was the only thing that mattered, China would have been always uh, the richest country in the world because they've been the most populous country in the world for about 2000 years. Um, that obviously hasn't been the case. However, to your point, China begins to liberalize in 1978. What you see in China today is the outcome of the last of the period between 1978 and about 2012, when she takes over and starts clamping down on freedom. But, but you know, China is still growing. My point is that they had imposed this particular policy precisely at the time when they were starting to liberalize. So uh, they, they, they adopt the policy in, two, in 75, and they start liberalizing in 78. So all those people would have been born into an economy which was liberalizing and therefore creating more value. Uh, the other negative consequences, aside from economic growth uh, that the Chinese uh, haven't enjoyed was, um, was the fact that Chinese parents have a preference for males over females. And so in, in the first decade of this century, you ended up with a very uh, skewed gender ratio of uh, about 120 men to every 100 women in in China, which meant that, you know, 20% of Chinese men never had the hope of, of marrying a Chinese woman. Uh, and, and there are good sociological studies showing that men who are not married uh, and who have no prospect of getting married then, then turn to crime. So that was another thing. And the last thing that the Chinese did um, was they've created a very unhealthy population pyramid. So a healthy pyramid looks something like this. You know, you've got a lot of people at the bottom, you know, a lot of young people supporting the people at the top, the very old, and, and, and their population pyramid looks something like this, right? Whereby, whereby they have this huge gap um, of people who are not born, and therefore there are going to be millions of jobs in China that cannot be filled by Chinese uh, workers, uh, because there's nobody to work, and plus whatever whatever the commitments that the Chinese government has made to the future generations of retirees and whatever, uh, that too will have to be uh, revisited uh, because you're going to have fewer taxpayers. Now, China wasn't, China wasn't the only country, which, I mean, India tried to do something like that, but within the Indian context, it was by no means as brutal, but uh, tens of thousands of men and women got forcibly sterilized against having children. So, so there was, there was a, there was a thing happening in China, at the, sorry, in India at the same time. Well, along those lines, uh, Elon Musk, who you mentioned before, has said, quote, population collapse due to low birth rates is a much bigger risk 
to civilization than global warming. Is he right? And if so, what are the forces that might lead to such a scenario? And what, if anything, can be done about it? So, um, the, to, to you know, we, we, we don't talk about climate change in our book, uh, just so that people who will watch this video um, uh, out there are, can rest easy. I accept that the world is uh, lukewarming. Um, I do reject, however, the notion of a... Um, uh, of an existential uh, threat to humans, because I think that if you're going to measure whether something is an existential threat to humans or not, you have to use some hard data on it, such as, for example, how many people's, people are dying every year due to extreme weather events. And in fact, over the last 100 years, the number of people who have died due to, um, uh, due to extreme weather um, has decreased by 98%. So even though CO2 in the atmosphere has increased, even though the world is in fact becoming slightly warmer, uh, the number of people who are dying due to climate, the climatic changes um, is actually collapsing, right? So that, that is why I sort of take this sort of middle of the road. Um, now, what, um, what I think could happen is that, okay, so, so already in 107 countries out of 190, you have birth rates below population replacement rate. So replacement rate is 2.1 children per woman per lifetime. Um, and already in 107 countries, something like 55% of the world's countries, it's, it's below the replacement level. And it's, it's most pronounced in advanced countries, including our own. Our population still continues to increase, but that's primarily because of immigration. Native-born American women have only 1.7 children. At any rate, um, the, the world's population will peak around 2060. We can predict that with certain degree of certainty, with, with, a, with, with a decent degree of certainty. And then it, it is going to start declining. So if we are going to have a decline in population and we cannot compensate for that decline by having more people live in free societies, and God forbid we, we will have a decline in population and a decline in political freedom, then you could see uh, profound consequences for economic growth, right? Once again, other things could intervene, such as AI or supercomputing, et cetera, which will enable uh, the, 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 the lower population um, to, to cope and produce more value. But, but you know, just, just looking at the interaction of freedom and population for now, it, it would seem that there could be danger ahead. I mean, if we if if the world is already dissatisfied with one and a half to two percent economic growth rate, which we have in the West today, and that was to shrink to one percent a year, well, you know, there's going to be a lot of unhappiness and a lot of unfulfilled dreams because the economy is just not growing at a rate that it should. All right. I, as you know, have a lot more questions for you, and I particularly want to get into. Uh, what you identify in the, the final part of the book as some of the threats to superabundance. But your fan base is going nuts here, and we've got a lot of great questions. Um, so I'd love to try to dip into the pantry here and get to some of them. Um, from Twitter, Temer06 asks, with all that has been gained in expansion of technology and productivity, how far have we been set back by lockdowns, lockdownism? Probably a couple of years. 
both in both in terms of economic productivity, but also in terms of life expectancy, for example, um, uh, yes. also in terms of poverty reduction around the world. Um, it's it's tough to estimate still, but I would say between two and two and five years. What's that comparable to? I mean, uh, you know, you, you look at some of these graphs that you have in, in the book, specifically with different countries, and then you see that every once in a while there's kind of this, uh, you've got this progress and then there's a dip. What what kinds of things cause those, those shocks? Obviously, lockdowns. Uh, lockdowns and, and wars and pathogens, uh, things like that. It is very important within the context of this question to reemphasize that the line of human progress is not smooth, it is jagged. If everything was working out for everyone everywhere at all times, that would not be progress, that would be just miracle, right? Mm -hmm. We have to account for contingencies. And the reality is that very often human beings make two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back, etc. Obviously, over the long run, when you stop, when you step back and you look at the line of progress, it seems smooth. But there is a lot of things that are going on. Let me give you just one example. Um, um, 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. Certainly more people have died due to communism and Nazism, um, uh, the, the Holocaust, the Holodomor and whatever than at any other period in history. And yet at the end of that history, as a species, we were richer than in 1900. We were better educated. Uh, we were... Um, we lived longer, we were healthier, we had more political rights, certainly women were much better treated in 20, uh, in, in, in 2000, they were in 1900. So the point is that um, even during that century of tremendous bloodshed, we, we, still, we still somehow managed to end that century in a better place than when we started. So that gives you a sense of both the, 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 the two steps forward, one step back, but also the, resi the resilience of the species to 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 cope and to and to and to move forward, so long as a certain fraction of humanity is able to live in freedom and come up with all of these technological uh, changes which drive human progress forward. All right, on Instagram, my modern Galt asks, "Do you think Americans in the West have had it too good to recognize and appreciate their?" prosperity. And I would append to that something that you uh, talk about in the book and that I've heard you talk about uh, in some of your interviews, you know, envy and gratitude are both two pretty significant themes for us here at the Atlas Society. Um, and you have a kind of formulation to talk about how uh, your different perspective, if you compare yourself to others or you compare yourself to an ideal utopian fantasy, that that engenders envy and resentment, but comparing yourself to the past and how far you've come engender gratitude. So how did you come up with that? I thought that was pretty neat. Um, I don't remember how I, well, I mean, maybe I came up with it subconsciously because, you know, I moved from a place where I didn't have any freedoms and we were relatively poor to a place where I have all the freedoms I want or need. Well, maybe not all I, <laughs> the government is growing a little too, uh, you know, suffocating, but, you know, I'm much freer and I'm also much more prosperous. So 
So, you know, I, because of this weird traumatic uh, experience of growing up in the communism, uh, my life has just been on an upward trajectory because I left it behind. So, so when I look at my 10 year old self and I know that, you know, at that point in time, I had no reason to believe that I would ever be able to leave the borders of Czechoslovakia, to go and live anywhere, uh, leave, to, 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 to go on a trip, we couldn't go, right? Because they, they knew, communists knew that once you left, you would never come back. So, so you were not allowed to go anywhere. So, so you know, I, I, can, I can sort of compare myself to the past and know that my life is just so much better. And, and I think that's, uh, so there are these two different emotions in place. So if you compare yourself to, and uh, let me backtrack a little bit. I, I genuinely believe that happiness and satisfaction is a choice, uh, depending on what you compare yourself with. Um, uh, if you compare yourself with to people in the past, let's say the last 99.01% of our species time on earth, everybody's lives were much worse than they are today in the West. Even the King of France had his wine freeze in his glasses in Versailles because it was so cold. Even President Coolidge's son died of an infection from an infected blister on his, on his foot when he played tennis because antibiotics were not developed back then. So just about almost everybody who's lived, 99 people out of 100 who's, who've ever lived have, have had a much worse time than you are having right now. So you can compare yourself to them and say, oh, thank God I live in the United States in 2022. Or you could compare yourself to that 7.7 .7 billion people who don't live in the United States today, who live in other countries, and 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 thank your lucky stars that um, that you live that you were born in the United States rather than in 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 Zimbabwe, where I where I traveled when I was a young man, and that you know there you see a real poverty, and and when you start thinking about life like that, then then the obvious uh, emotion that must come to your mind is gratitude. Now, on the other hand. If you compare yourself to uh, the Kardashians, or um, I, I don't even know who they are really, to be honest, but let's say somebody very famous, somebody very rich who travels around the world in private on private jets, and they have their own yacht, and they have two Lamborghinis, um, uh, and, and and they so just got a divorce from a manic depressive, yeah. <laughs> So suits them right, right? Anyway, that's the envy coming out. Um, so the point is that if you compare yourself to people like that, who have everything for whatever reason, um, but they don't even have to be necessarily wealthy. I mean, if you compare yourself to somebody within your own sort of, if you compare yourself to somebody uh, who is very beautiful um, and, and, and think that your life is ruined because you are an eight and not a nine, if I compare myself to Roger Federer, I'm a tennis player. I love tennis. But I'm horrible compared to Roger Federer. If, if, if he is my comparison, that I cannot be but resentful. Oh, God, how did you make it possible that, you know, I cannot hit a proper back end? Uh, and, and then you're just sort of wallowing in this constant uh, cycle of depression and resentment. And I, don't, and I genuinely think that it is up to you to, uh, to decide how you want to look at your life. Yeah, I love that what you said that happiness is a choice. And I, I think from an objectivist perspective that it's not just that feeling envy and resentment is icky and certainly not as much 
fun. It's not as agreeable as feeling grateful, but there's something about, um, I think having a, a realistic perspective of all of the things that you have going for you just is much more empowering because it gives you more balance for when those shocks and, and when those uh, obstacles and reversals come. But I think that Ayn Rand would, would also agree that another way in which you can be grateful is to look at your past uh, and, and see if you have progressed, if you have built yourself up, if you have succeeded, then, then that's also another way in which you can, you don't have to constantly um, compare yourself to other people, be they yesterday or be they richer people. You can also compare yourself to yourself in the past. And if in the last 10 years you got a big raise or finished a degree um, or uh, got a better job or, you know, married or reached some other important goal, that, that's, also, that's also a very good way of doing it. Yes, as long as you are progressing. Otherwise, I think that could be a bit discouraging. Um, all right, so wanted to get to this section of the book. We have about 15 minutes left. You make the point that this is not an automatic process. Um, our progress towards superabundance is not something that we uh, should take for granted. And you describe some of the chief threats uh, which are not intuitive at all. And, and one of them was restrictions on free speech. So how does that play into hampering progress? I, th I think it kind of, we could think of it as recent example being with the restrictions on free speech with regards to, hey, are these lockdowns a good idea? Sure, um, oh, absolutely. Um, I think that our society had shown itself in a, in a very intolerant and uh, uh, very sort of psychotic uh, phase uh, that that it didn't speak well for most of the advanced countries, perhaps with the exception of Sweden. But um, so free speech is important on a sort of a macro level and also on a micro level. On a macro level, if you don't have free speech in a society, then of course the society could literally fall off the cliff. Um, you know, like lemmings following a bad idea of the cliff. Think about Soviet Russia or China under, under Mao, if, if nobody's permitted to say, hell, fellow lemmings, I think we are <laughs> heading for the cliff, you know, maybe we shouldn't, uh, then, then you can have horrific things happening like, like Mao or Stalin or Hitler or whatever. So, so on a macro level, it's important to have free speech so that people can raise objections to wherever the society is heading, including during COVID in the United States. On a micro level, of course, freedom of speech is important to any kind of um, scientific um, uh, endeavor, any kind of technological progress and whatever. Um, uh, even during the Soviet Union times, it is worth noting uh, Soviet scientists had much more, uh, much more freedom to speak uh, and to interact with people abroad, read uh, foreign uh, newspapers and foreign magazines, go to conferences, interact with Western people, because it was always understood, even by Stalin, that only by exchanging information with uh, other people in your in your group, let's say that you're a nuclear physicist, you can you can actually come up with that innovation that may uh, you know make humanity better off or your country stronger, which would have been Stalin's uh, primary goal, obviously. And um, 
and 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 there are a lot of reasons to be worried so for example th there are certain areas in in uh, research which are now no-go areas uh, for example uh, uh, psychological or genetic differences between people um, we need to know that partly because we want to know how to craft our medicine our drugs to suit people i mean one of the great things on the horizon is personalized medicine that right. we will be able to give you exactly the kinds of drugs that that are just for you. Peter Diamandis talks about this very passionately. You know, when you have an illness, the drug will be made just for you to to basically suit whatever the DNA structure that you have, um, whatever the gene structure. Now, if we are prohibited from looking into genetic differences uh, between people, for example, that that, that is a massive uh, limitation on. Um, on, on, on the potential for improving our health in the future globally. Um, if there are other things where the, the, the woke police says that you that, that, that you cannot um, uh, that you can research, for example, differences between men and women, um, you know, um, obviously, uh, politically, I believe that men and women need to be absolutely equal. Uh, but that doesn't mean that everything that that women encounter in life is the same as what men encounter in life and you need to be aware of that um again one of those areas that that can no longer be spoken about and i think that since since the 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 the, the woke progressives are becoming basically um worried about everything we, we could just end up with these entire areas of scientific research which are which are off um limits, limits. Yeah. to 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 research and consequently you know slowing the the scope of progress another reason why freedom of speech is important and i know i'm babbling on for a while but another reason why it's important is because many people who um many people who on on whom we disproportionately rely for progress for technological progress and scientific progress tend to be a little bit off i'm sure you've met many of them in silicon valley in your time but you know there are a lot of people on the spectrum um, and and, um, um, and and they are peculiar, uh, often neurotic, uh, very quirky. And, um, you know, let's take somebody like Jim Watson, you know, the co-discoverer of DNA. I mean, here's a guy who just says the most offensive things imaginable. Um, or Stephen Jobs, who was a very difficult and apparently quite a nasty boss. Now imagine if a millennial came to him and said, uh, came to the board and said, we need to shut down Steve Jobs because he's been nasty to me. You know, uh, all of these people, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't sacrifice technological progress on the altar of niceness. That is what I'm arguing in the book. We have to be aware that we have all of these people who have something to contribute to the world. Some of them will be a little bit off, but you, we just have to put up with it because we really need them to, to function um, and 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 to 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 create more wealth. Um, and I just worry that we are becoming so averse to any kind of um, any kind any kind of unorthodox behavior and and opinions that we may shut down a lot of people whom we need. All right. Well, we're coming up here towards the end, but um, let's though. I don't want to miss talking about some of the other threats to continued progress and superabundance in terms of uh, recognizing that this is not an automatic process. So we've just talked about free speech. What are some of the others? 
Well, obviously, population growth is, I think, important. Now, I'm obviously, uh, I believe in freedom, so people must have as many children as they want. But the, the goal of the book is, is a very, very narrow one. To the extent that you are worried about running out of resources, you don't have to be worried about that. If that is something that is at the back of your mind, why you don't want to have children, then you don't have to worry about that. There may be other reasons why you decide not to have children, but resources shouldn't be one of them because we can always produce more value from the resources that we already have. And the last bit, which will not surprise you at all, has to do with the freedom of the market. Uh, the only way we can distinguish between good innovation and a bad innovation, valuable innovation from a valueless innovation, is to subject it to the test of the market. The market and the price mechanism uh, must tell us which solar panels are good, which solar panels are bad, whether you should be using VHS or Betamax, whether you should be using Samsung or Apple. In other words, um, the market must be allowed to select for the best innovations um, so that the world can then adopt them. And if, if we are moving into a world where there's less economic freedom and where the government can choose uh, winners and losers, then of course the whole point of innovation is undermined. All right, well, one threat as well, of course, is bad philosophy and bad values that can lead whether, you know, through uh, kind of hubris of central planners or through populist democracy um, is, is again, bad, bad values. So uh, maybe we could close with one of the observations that I've heard you make, which again, it's quite sort of singular and um, insightful. You've said that inequality is the midwife of progress. Maybe we could end with your elaborating on that. Yes, uh, yes, I do believe that very firmly. And when I uh, speak about it to some friends on the left, their, their mouths are just open and they just cannot understand what I mean by it. But, but inequality is the midwife of progress. Um, any kind of innovation in society, be it in personal behavior, in, uh, in, uh, in consumption, in production, first manifests itself as inequality. Um, equality is stasis. Equality is Eastern Europe circa 1985. Nothing changed. Everything was, in fact, inequality, uh, sorry, in fact, stasis or equality was the lot of human species for most of our existence on Earth. If you look at life expectancy or GDP per capita, it was constant for tens of thousands of years. Inequality means that you are introducing into a system a disruption, a way of doing things, which will manifest itself in, first of you, you getting rich or, or more popular or higher in the status hierarchy, but other people can adopt it and therefore benefit themselves. Ford Motor Company is a perfect example. People used to make cars all over the world by hand. And Henry Ford developed the factory way of making cars so that he could produce a new Model T every 20 minutes or so. I don't remember what it was. And he could, he could sell a, uh, a Model T for you know $200. But by doing that, he has basically created a horrible sin of inequality. He became a better producer of cars than anybody else. He put a lot of car businesses out of, car manufacturers out of business. And he also became filthy rich, right? But it was that point 
when when he stopped doing things equally or the same way, equality is just sameness, right? In in the way that I use it, in the same way that he was able to disrupt the process and move the world forward. It's the same thing that you you could say about I don't know personal behavior. Um, if you are surrounded by people who are drunkards, uh, but but you are the one who is semi-drunk or maybe sober and puts away the money and invests in the stock market and can retire at the age of 65 on two or three or four million dollars. That also is an inequality of behavior, but it signals to the rest of the population that if they embrace that kind of behavior, they themselves can benefit. So whether you look at personal behavior or production or consumption or anything else, um, it's, it's, by, it's by leaving the herd and doing something new which both creates inequality, but also moves people forward. I love that. All right, well, apologies to the crowd of people that asked so many wonderful questions uh, over the past hour. Marion, if they are to shoot them to you, would Twitter or social media be the best place for them to try to? I, uh, <laughs> depends on how many they are. I'm, I may be able to answer, but uh, I'm I'm very easy to find. M2P at Cato.org. Um, the book can be found at Superabundance.com. Superabundance.com, and of course, uh, if you like, please visit HumanProgress.org. Wonderful. So thank you, Marion. Again, thank all of you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this video and you are a believer in value for value and you know that uh, the work that we do isn't free, please consider making a tax deductible donation at atlassociety.org. Uh, and join us next week when author and comedian Constantine Kissin will be our guest on the Atlas Society Asks next Wednesday. We'll see you there.